Appendix It has been common in some quarters of late to speak of Rennick and his associates in testimony bearing and suffering as only contending against the unconstitutional and persecuting measures of the government of the royal brothers, and to declare that, had they lived to witness the change of government which took place at the revolution, they would have joyfully hailed it as the realization of their eager aspirations, and would have incorporated readily with the national society. Thus Dodds in his, quote, 50 years struggle of the Scottish Covenanters, unquote, while acknowledging the important services rendered to the cause of the Prince of Orange by the bold and resolute position taken by the Cameronians, represents Rennick as not only, quote, the last martyr of the covenanting struggle, unquote, but also as, quote, the proto-martyr of the revolution, unquote. He adds, quote, like the shepherd overwhelmed in the snowstorm, he perished within sight of the door. The door of deliverance was speedily opened on the arrival of William in November 1688, unquote. And again, speaking of Cameron, Rennick, and the stricter covenanters, he says, quote, so far, the revolution settlement in the main adopting what was universal and rejecting what was exclusive or over-grasping in their views was the consummation and triumph civilly and politically and to a large extent ecclesiastically of the 50 years struggle of the Scottish Covenanters, unquote. These statements, though plausible and such as seem likely to be readily embraced by those who have no relish for a full covenanted testimony or who desire to maintain fellowship with corrupt civil and ecclesiastical systems, are liable to one fundamental and unanswerable objection. They are wholly unsupported by historical evidence. All pains were taken by Cameron and Rennick in preaching and in their dying testimonies, and by the United Societies in their published declarations, to show that they testified not merely against the usurpation and blasphemous supremacy of the last of the Stuarts, but likewise principally against all invasion of the Redeemer's royal prerogatives and all departure from the scriptural attainments of the former happy Reformation. In nothing were they more decided than in testifying to the death that the national covenants were the oath of God perpetually binding on all classes in the realm, quote, the marriage tie, unquote, which no power on earth could dissolve, that all departure from the principles of these federal deeds was sinful and involved the land in the guilt of national apostasy and perjury, and that the authority of the scripture was supreme in constituting the national society, in enacting and administering the laws and in regulating the lives and official acts of the rulers. The revolution settlement in both its civil and ecclesiastical departments, instead of being the exemplification and carrying forward of the work of the Second Reformation for the maintenance of which the Scottish martyrs shed their blood, was a deliberate abandonment of it, and was established in open opposition to its grand and distinguishing principles. The faithful companions and followers of Rennick refused to incorporate with this settlement on the ground of adhering firmly to the scriptural vows of the nation and the testimonies of illustrious martyrs. While giving the best proof of their genuine patriotism, they withheld allegiance from the government of William and they took the name and position of, quote, old dissenters, unquote, for reasons which they clearly stated, which those who opposed and misrepresented them were unable to answer and the greater part of which are 
far as applicable to the present British government and existing ecclesiastical systems as they were to the settlement of the revolution. Several of the political changes which have taken place in recent times have supplied strong additional grounds for faithful covenanters maintaining the position of public protest against and active dissent from the establishments, civil and ecclesiastical of the nation. The reasons of separation from the revolution church and state as given by the, quote, society people, unquote, are, are presented in a lucid and convincing manner in the work entitled, quote, Plain reasons for Presbyterians dissenting from the Revolution Church in Scotland, as also their principles concerning civil government and the difference betwixt the Reformation and Revolution principles, unquote. They are likewise exhibited in a condensed form in the, quote, short account of old dissenters, unquote, emitted with the sanction of the Reformed Presbytery and in very luminous terms in the historical part of the, quote, testimony of the Reformed Presbyterian Church, unquote. No person who peruses these works and ponders their carefully prepared statements can with candor or on and honesty affirm that Rennick and his fellow sufferers would have willingly incorporated with the Revolution Settlement or that fellowship with the present British political system by taking oaths of allegiance and, and office and setting up rulers is consistent with their declared and dearly prized principles. Let the, let the quote, plain reasons, unquote, to which we have referred to be duly weighed, and it must be perfectly apparent that Mr. Dodd's or oracular statement that the, quote, revolution settlement, unquote, was the consummation and triumph civilly and politically and to a large extent ecclesiastically of the, quote, 50 years struggle of the Scottish Covenanters, unquote, is completely destitute of any solid foundation. These reasons are such as the following. The Scottish Reformation in its purest form was deliberately abandoned in the Revolution Settlement. Both the Church and State concurred in leaving unrepealed on the statute book the infamous Act Recissory by which the National Covenants were declared to be unlawful oaths and all laws and constitutions, ecclesiastical or civil, were annulled, which approved and gave effect to them. The Revolution Church was, in every respect, an entirely different establishment from that of the Second Reformation. Its creed was dictated by Erastian authority, its government established on the ground of popular consent and not of divine right, its order and discipline were placed in subjection to Erastian civil rulers, and the scriptural liberties of the ministry and membership interfered with and corruption in doctrine and ordinances of worship without the power of removing it extensively spread throughout the ecclesiastical body. How sadly different a structure did this appear to the eyes of faithful men who lamented that the carved work of a covenanted sanctuary had been broken down and that and the, quote, beautiful house where their fathers worshipped was laid waste, unquote. Nor could the civil and political part of the Revolution Settlement have any pretensions to be a proper carrying out of the civil system of the Reformation era. In this, the federal deeds of the nation were the compact between rulers and ruled, and were an essential part of the oath of the sovereign on admission to supreme power. Civil rulers were required to be possessed of 
scriptural and covenant qualification and were taken bound to make a chief end of their government the promotion of the divine glory in the advancement of the true reformed religion and the protection and prosperity of the reformed Presbyterian Church. They were likewise solemnly engaged to employ their official influence and authority to put away systems that had been abjured in the national vows, popery, prelacy, and erastianism, and to discourage all profaneness and ungodliness. At the revolution, all these engagements were deliberately set aside, the sovereign's coronation oath and the oath of allegiance of subjects bind both equally to the support of prelacy, which is declared to be established unchangeably in England and Ireland. The whole civil system is based on expediency and the popular will and not on scriptural principles. The authority claimed and exercised by the monarch over the Presbyterian establishment in Scotland and the national church in England and Ireland is grossly Erastian. The introduction of popery into the bosom of the state, the admission of papists to offices of power and trust in the nation and the endowment of popish seminaries and chaplains which the revolution settlement barred but which the anti-Christian and infidel policy of recent times has enacted shows still more clearly that the civil and political system established in these countries is 